So have you ever tried to make a prediction about something? Sure. Right? How, how'd it turn out, Bill? <laughs> Once in a while, okay. Well, I, I've, I've got some for you. I've got some predictions from the past. And all these are from very trusted individuals in their time. Uh, a guy by the name of Thomas Watson, who was the chairman of IBM in 1943, said, I think there's a world market for maybe five computers. <laughs> Wouldn't he be surprised? Uh, there was an inventor by the name of Lee DeForest who made the claim that while theoretically and technically television may be feasible, Commercially and financially, it was an impossibility. Uh, the Decca Recording Company made a big mistake when they made this prediction concerning a, a new musical group. They said, uh, we don't like their sound, and besides, guitar music is on its way out. And that was their prediction in 1962 concerning a, a fledgling band from Liverpool called the Beatles. Right. So, so making... Making predictions about all kinds of things is just something people do, right? Especially about the apocalypse and about the end of the world. Uh, and over the years, many people have actually made predictions about it. I remember back when I was in grade school, uh, the intelligentsia of the day said there was going to be a devastating worldwide famine that would encompass the entire globe by the mid-1980s. Uh, AOC and her squad up on Capitol Hill announced just recently, about three years ago, that we only had maybe 12 more years left as a species if we didn't immediately surrender all of our civil rights and the majority of our riches to the Democrats. I mean, if we didn't immediately begin to battle climate change. If we didn't immediately begin to battle, sorry. I said the quiet parts out loud. Um, the, the Mayan calendar said we'd be toast by, by 2012, right? And here's one for you. Modern cosmologists say there's a really good chance we could be hit by an extinction-level comet sometime in the next 22 billion years. So you're welcome to start worrying now. But in our lesson today, though, uh, even Jesus' first disciples wanted some clues about the end of time, and that's where we pick up in our lectionary reading today in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. And I'm going to be reading to you the first 13 verses. So I hope you have your Bibles with you to follow along. Mark 13 first 13 verses. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the true and living God. And as he came out of the temple, of course, meeting Jesus, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and, and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, uh, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines, and these are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, 
But say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it will not be you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Father God, we thank you so much for this word. We thank you that even in the midst of a frightening world, Father, you've promised that we have a place of peace and rest and safety, and we find that, Lord, in your word. And so we ask you to open blind eyes today, open stopped ears, uh, melt stony hearts, and let your word go forward today, Father, because you promised it won't return to you in vain. Uh, And Lord, we're here to see Jesus, and we ask for that in his name. Amen. So the temple... In Jerusalem, and I had a great talk with Sandy's brother about this. So you actually saw this in person. Uh, it was the heart of Judaism in the first century. And if you remember, the original temple built by King Solomon had been destroyed centuries prior, and then the, a second one had been rebuilt in the days of Nehemiah. But nothing compared to the glory of the original. And, and so, when Herod the Great came to the throne in 37 BC. That temple that was there wasn't enough for him, so began the task of embellishing and expanding it, starting probably about 20 years or so before Jesus was born. And the work actually continued all the way through Jesus' adult ministry. And this place was enormous, right? The the smallest stones in the structure uh, weighed two to three tons, with many of them weighing closer to 50 tons. The largest existing stone that's still there, part of the Wailing Wall, is about 40 feet in length, just under 10 feet high, and it weighs hundreds of tons. And these stones were so immense that that their stability was attained just by their great weight alone, without any need for mortar in between them, any kind of supports around them. And the place was so big that during Jesus' day, a quarter of a million people could fit comfortably inside the structure. So, So bigger than any sports stadium or concert venue you can imagine. And not only was it their religious capital, but it also functioned as the focus for civic life and and as a symbol that God's hand of providence was over the nation of Israel. Because to the Jewish people, the temple was the divine dwelling place of God. It was was the seat of his throne inside the Holy of Holies. And it set Israel apart as the only nation on earth where the actual presence of God chose to live in a building that was inspired and ordained by God himself. And because of that, the whole whole temple complex was heavily guarded to ensure order and and dignity within its precincts. Especially, because if you remember our readings, just prior to the events in today's, uh, the holy city was filling up with folks who were flocking to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. We've been talking about that over the last several lessons. Uh, In one of his books on uh, ancient Israeli history, an author by the name of Alfred Edersheim. Uh, he wrote about the atmosphere and the excitement that would have been in the air at this time of year. I'll just give you a brief quote because I love the way he puts this. He writes, Before the pilgrims lay Jerusalem in all her festive attire. All around holiday pilgrims were hastening toward it. Their white tents dotted the meadow along with the bright flowers of early spring and the darker foliage of the olive plantations that lined the route up to the town. Curls of smoke rose from the temple area, whose buildings of snow-white marble and gold glowed in the last of the evening light. The streets within the city were thronged with strangers, and the 
Flat roofs of the buildings were covered with eager gazers feasting their eyes on the sights of this sacred destination. And so it's with that background in our reading today that Jesus and his disciples were walking near this magnificent temple complex when, when some of them started talking about how it was adorned with such beautiful stones and with such precious gifts dedicated to God and pointing out its architectural grandeur when Jesus basically tells them, uh, guys, don't be too impressed because what you see here is not permanent. He told them, Jesus said, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Because what they didn't realize was that although the temple might look really pretty on the outside, it was getting pretty rotten on the inside. And even if all of this grandeur and beauty might be impressive to the disciples, the religious system it was designed to promote was falling apart internally, although most of the people then didn't realize it. And so when Jesus told the disciples it would all be thrown down and destroyed, they were shocked. That was unthinkable. It wasn't the response they were expecting, and they couldn't imagine life without it. So it made them frightened about their future, just like you and I can be sometimes. The disciples' questions were no different than ours would have been. Uh, when is this all going to happen? Uh, when is the end going to come? What, what sign should we look for? Right? It's a question people still ask today. And, and if you notice, Jesus didn't directly answer their question, did he? Instead, he, he paints this vivid picture of warring nations and insurrections and earthquakes and, and famines and frightful omens. And as we read in our text, when, you know, when you hear that, it's easy to hear that and either be overwhelmed with all of this apocalyptic imagery or to ignore it altogether and say, oh, I'll just think about that tomorrow. But, you know, apocalyptic imagery and dreadful portents aside, I imagine that many of us have been wondering lately if our current world is not actually falling apart right before our very eyes. Right? Uh, we're still living in the effects of perhaps one of the worst economic crises since the Great Depression. Politically and culturally, we're more divided than ever. Our country is actually still at war on several fronts. Terrorist attacks have escalated around the world. Our planet has been plagued by an increasing number of hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes and it's not only the world that seems to be falling apart but the worldwide christian church has been too uh, major denominations who were once bastions of truth have begun denying the authority of scripture some are minimizing the exclusivity of christ's atonement and others are not only accepting but celebrating ungodly and sinful lifestyles and so with doctrine and truth abandoned some liberal forms of christianity have begun to transform into a whole new humanistic religion of wokeness, which church is really nothing more than the latest iteration of the spirit of Antichrist that has already been at work behind the scenes since the days of the apostles. That's why uh, the apostle John said in 1 John 4, everyone who does not acknowledge that Jesus is from God has the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is already active in the world. And thinking about all of that can get kind of depressing. So when you consider Jesus' words and the state of our world, we have to ask ourselves, how do we as followers of Christ keep pressing on in the midst of trying times when we have absolutely no real idea what tomorrow will bring? And the answer, thankfully, comes from our gospel reading today. Because if you were listening, the real focus of Jesus' words 
were not on the end of the world itself or on the signs that accompany it, but instead his focus was on what it should mean for how we, his followers, continue to live with confidence and peace no matter what happens. And so even though the disciples wanted to know when uh, all these things were going to occur so they could figure out what to do when those things come, instead what Jesus tells them is what not to do when the world seems to be falling apart. What not to do when they find themselves on trial and what not to worry about whenever persecution comes. And we've talked about this a lot in Sunday school over this past year about the variety of ways that following Jesus now puts us at odds with the values of the world. And at times with the values of our friends and even at times at odds with the values of our own families. Because the truth is, brothers and sisters, our faith is on trial every single day of our lives. It's on trial in the day-to-day choices that we make. It's on trial in the way we spend our money and where we choose to spend our time. And it's challenged whenever tragedy and trials come to call. Somebody, somebody has written, we're all just a car crash a diagnosis, an unexpected phone call, an unforeseen moment, or a broken heart away from becoming a completely different person. And the point of that is life is short and it's unpredictable. And so in light of that, how do you and I react when our world is falling apart? And in our gospel lesson, as I said, Jesus doesn't give us advice on what to do necessarily, but on what not to do. And Jesus offers these three pieces of advice. First, Don't be led astray by false teaching or bad advice. Don't panic when the unexpected happens. And maybe most importantly, don't be afraid of the future. Don't be afraid of the future. Now, now in the little bit of time that I have left, I can't fully develop all those points, but I do want to hit the highlights because, you know, when the world is falling apart, most people, whether they're Christian or not, end up doing the very things that Jesus told us in the lesson not to do. We let ourselves be deceived, which is exactly what Jesus warned about as something not to do. Like in verse 8, he said, uh, he replied, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and saying the time has come. But don't believe them. I think one of the easiest places to see how this kind of deception is at work in our world is how our culture treats sin. You know, like, for instance, we don't say the word adultery anymore. It's having a what? An affair. That sounds nice, right? Sodomy is now just an alternative lifestyle. Late-term abortions are not called murder. They're simply our right to what? Choose. That sounds good, right? As, but as little by little, the idea of absolute truth is being eroded out of our culture. But brothers and sisters, the only sure way to balance ourselves in this deceptive world is to know the scriptures and to obey what God tells us to do. And not only are we not to be deceived, Jesus also warns us, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid as we deal with this constant barrage of negative and frightening predictions concerning the future. Because they're either going to cause you to cave into fear, or we can take Jesus' advice in verse 9. And when you hear of wars and insurrections, don't panic. Yes, these things must take place first, but the end won't follow immediately. So what Jesus is doing here is correcting the mistaken impression of the disciples by telling them, you know, basically, guys, keep your wits about you. Understand the times that you're in. But at the same time, every single thing that happens isn't a sign of the end times. Right. I mean, yes, the devil is hard at work in the world. 
But church, he isn't behind every bush or around every corner. Because even though the Bible does tell us what to expect, it's given to us in prophecies and signs and not in timestamp predictions. See, that's why further on in the same discourse, same chapter, Mark 13, but verse 32, Jesus adds, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Because the purpose of the prophecies doesn't center around our perfect knowledge of how every little detail will all play out, but to show us that God is in control so that we won't need to be afraid regardless. You see, that's why we're told not to panic. But people don't always remember that, do they? Like, sometimes I think we like to think we're smarter than God. You know, even solid Christian folks do sometimes. And we're always trying to pin down a date for like the the big finale of planet Earth, right? Uh, Even though Jesus himself said uh, he hadn't personally looked ahead to find that out, probably so his men couldn't pester it out of him. Uh, And yet people still publish predictions of the end of the world, don't they? And people buy them. In April of 1843, a New England farmer named William Miller claimed that after... Uh, Several years of very careful Bible study, he concluded God's chosen time to destroy the world would come sometime between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. You may remember this one. Closer to our time when Halley's Comet appeared in the mid-90s, rumors surfaced that an alien spacecraft was following it, right? Of course, covered up by NASA and the astronomical community and all the conspiracy theory. Uh, Even though those claims were refuted by astronomers and actually could be refuted by anyone with a decent telescope, uh, these claims inspired a San Diego UFO cult named Heaven's Gate. You guys remember that? To uh, conclude the world would be ending soon, and unfortunately for them, the world did end for 39 cult members who committed suicide on March 26, 1997, when those predictions didn't come through. Uh, in his book, God's Final Witness, a, a guy by the name of Ronald Veland wrote that uh, the Bible predicted that by 2006 that the United States will have completely collapsed as a world power. And the book closes by saying the author was so sure that would happen, he staked his whole reputation on the line as an end-time prophecy of God. But we all know what happened, right? All those predictions failed. And the poor folks who believed those false prophets and bought their books were left wondering if the Bible was true and reliable. But church, it wasn't the Bible that failed. It was the misrepresentation of the Bible that failed. So, so if you ever want a really safe bet, right, the next time somebody puts a, a stamp you know, of expiration date on the cosmos, like it's a, a cottage cheese container at Publix, uh, you can bet every cent you have against them because I can guarantee you on the authority of God's word that they're going to come up wrong. Right? But you know, honestly, that's important to remember. As, as a brand new year is almost upon us, guys. I mean, it's coming fast. And we begin to wonder what the future of our nation holds. And it really is actually couldn't be a more timely message uh, in light of our polarizing political climate and the advent of the upcoming midterms next year and the, the fragile nature of our now fractured union. And, you know, even though I pray that God does restore sanity to Washington, Jesus' message here is that just like the temple, no political parties are permanent. No human ruler has a complete grip on righteousness, and no government, whether liberal or conservative or somewhere in between, will ever supplant the plans and purposes of Almighty God. And we can't make the same mistake that the people of Jesus' day made who looked around for 
an enigmatic leader who shared their political opinions and who would facilitate all their personal desires because no human being can ultimately do that by themselves. But instead, we need to be keeping an eye toward eternal solutions. They can only come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, I mean, work and pray and vote for good government on one hand, but trust God to hold on tightly to the other hand. Just in case his plans include continued judgment by the wicked and incompetent rulers we have in our current administration. Because either way, if our hope is in God's providence and if we believe that he is in control, we can be confident even in a world that may seem to be falling apart. And we can use those circumstances as an opportunity to point to the hope that we have in Jesus. Just as he said today, uh, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand what you're to say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And actually, in Luke's account of this story, Jesus rounds out that advice by actually saying, this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. You see, Jesus wants us to use our trials to testify about him. He wants us to share our story, to share how Jesus has impacted our lives, how he's, he's transformed us, and to make us a witness as to whether we really believe Jesus is who he says he is. Does he actually undergird every aspect of our lives? Is he a real foundation on which we can stand? Or is he just an idea we occasionally drag out to comfort ourselves? And so I say to you today in his name, if you're not sure today which side of that equation you fall on, don't leave here today without making a decision. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. And so, loved one, if you hear him reaching out to you today, don't turn away. The end is coming. <coughs> Excuse me, whether it's the end of the world or just the end of our individual lives. And you will not always have a chance to receive him. Brothers and sisters, we don't know everything that the future holds. We don't know exactly where our culture is headed, and we don't always know which person to put our faith in as they make their daily predictions on the evening news shows. And so, more than ever, we need to have our feet firmly planted on the firm foundation, and that is our redemption. Our redemption by the grace of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, revealed to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then, and only then, can we set our hand to whatever we're called to plow through in this life as we keep our focus in heaven and refuse to live in fear. I just want to leave you with a, with a thought, a, a poignant and I think a really helpful quote by the great reformer Martin Luther, who purportedly said, even if I knew the world was going to end tomorrow, I would still plant an apple tree today. Right? Even if the world was going to end tomorrow, I would still plant an apple tree today, which really <clears throat> is just kind of a more colorful way to affirm Romans 14 that says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die... We're the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the living and the dead. And brothers and sisters, that's a prediction you can take to the bank. Amen. Amen. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. We thank you that it's a firm foundation that we can stand on. We ask you, Lord, that you'd be with us in this coming week, that you would write these convictions on our hearts, that you would bring them readily to our lips when we have the opportunity to share them. Uh, and you would give us, Father, a hope to leave here with that will see us through no matter what comes in the future. And we trust all of these things to you and are grateful for all that you're about to do for us. In Jesus' name, amen.